Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole well good thing instacart shoppers are as picky as you are they find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line they are milk expiration date detectives they bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are so let instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Hey, it's Matt here, and I wanted to reach out and do something a little bit different for this special episode during the holiday season. As many of you know, we released a mashup on gratitude during Thanksgiving this year, and many listeners wrote back in with feedback that they really enjoyed the compilation format. And so for Christmas this year, we wanted to expand on that and bring you some of the best moments from the show for Christmas this year. Consider this mashup to be your personal little Christmas present from me, Austin, and our team here at the Science of Success. For this holiday special, we brought you some of the best moments on giving, connectedness, compassion, kindness, courage, and so much more. You'll certainly recognize some of these guests, including Brene Brown, Oscar Trimboli, and more But you might see some new faces on there as well. People from back in the day like John Wang, Dr. Keltner, and some exciting guests from our archives. Now, usually I'm the one asking the guests on the show to give you some homework. But in this episode, I'd like to personally ask something of you. This week, find some time to express gratitude and to do something special for someone else. This may be as simple as calling a family member, a friend, colleague or mentor, and letting them know that you care about them. 
Maybe it's writing a letter to a long-lost friend. Perhaps it's even donating some of your time to help those in your area who may be in need this season. And one of my personal favorite things to do is to buy toys for children that are in need through a program like Toys for Tots or the Angel Tree. It's so much fun and it's a great thing to do around the holiday season. But whatever it is, express some gratitude towards your fellow human beings. It's hard to believe that we've been running the show for over four years now, but it's been a true honor to help bring so many lessons to you, to help everyone unlock, even if just a little bit, to help everyone unlock some of their hidden potential. I can't wait for 2020 and for another exciting year here on the Science of Success. As always, feel free to drop me a note. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. I hope you have a great end to 2019. And I hope you enjoy this special Christmas episode. Yours truly, Matt, Austin, and the entire Science of Success team. Are you a fan of the show? And have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. We sat down in a previous episode with our past guest, the legendary podcaster Dan Carlin, to uncover how we can make sense in today's confusing world. If you want to find some clarity in all the chaos and confusion, listen to our previous episode. Now for our Christmas special. I totally agree. And, and coming back to the people, the perspective of the people who are in the arena versus the people who are in, as you put it, the cheap seats. It's funny because I have so many young people who are listeners of the show and I have nieces and nephews who are in high school and college and they're so scared sometimes to just take the first step. They're so scared, to, as you put it, to show up. Why are people so afraid? I think there are, I think there are a, a lot of reasons and I think some of them are demographic. I think some of them are informed by race and class and gender. I mean, I think it's complex. But here's what I would say. When you think about young people, and this is my 22 years of teaching graduate students, we don't teach people how to get back up after they fall. And because we don't teach people how to rise, they never take the leap. Like, can you imagine if you didn't know how, like if you, if you physically fell and you didn't know how to get back up, you'd spend your whole life tiptoeing around. You'd spend your whole life like bracing your palms on the hood of a car when you step off the curb. Then you would follow the car with your hand until you open the door. Then you'd hold on to the oh shit handle as you tried to, you know, get into the seat. Like you would never let go of everything and just walk. Because your death fear would be, if I fall, I don't know how to get back up. The same thing is true in our socio-emotional world. If we don't know how to get back up after failure, disappointment, or setback, we will spend an enormous amount of energy making sure we never have to get back up. And so for me, I have a lot of bounce. Like, I have a lot of bounce. And so I'm willing to take chances because I'm very secure in my ability to get back up. 
because I, you know, and I think it's if even if you think about going back really to young, young folks, even if you think about letting kids experience adversity. And so one of the conversations my husband and I had very early on when we were brand new parents is we both come from like, you know, divorced parents, a lot of really hard, hard shit, stuff that we would never want to subject our kids to. And then at the same time, we both really respect our own and each other's resilience. So, and he, did did I just say he was a pediatrician? He's a pediatrician. So we have a lot of parenting conversations. And so the big finding we came to was we need to let, there's a line between adversity and trauma. And we need to let our kids experience adversity, not so much trauma. That kind of sets us back. So I think having experiences with adversity and knowing how to get back up makes people braver because they're willing to take a chance. Such a powerful analogy and really shines light on this notion. I love the example of walking around with the fear of never being able to get back up because it so clearly highlights the the idea that the truly important skill set is not whether you're perfect at walking, but it's just learning how to get up over and over again. I mean, that's it. It's, you know, I don't even know who said the quote, but someone has a great quote that says, the most important number is not the number of times that you fall, but the number of times you fall, you know, the time, the number of times you get back up. Like that is so, I know it's like, you know, cheesy, like cue the Rocky music or whatever, but it's just true. And so what we know, I mean, this is for me, to be honest, Matt, if I think about all of my work over the last 20 something years, I don't think that I'm more proud of anything than the work that we, the research that we did on courage and the fact that courage is teachable, observable, and measurable. It's four skill sets. But one of the key four skill sets is learning how to get back up. You know, the, you know, the first big skill set is the ability to be vulnerable. We call it rumbling with vulnerability. The second one is really knowing what your values are and how to live into them because people who are not super clear and t- you know just very gritty clear about their values and what those behaviors look like are not as brave. They don't risk the fall. The next one is braving trust, learning how to trust yourself and other people appropriately. And then the last one is learning to get back up. So we can teach these things, but I got to tell you, as I step back and think about the way that we parent today, not everybody, but a growing part of parenting, I think, unfortunately, the way schools are set up, we're not teaching courage skills. I couldn't agree more. And in many ways that the root of that idea is what underpins our entire project with the science of success as well. I want to dig into all of these different ideas. So let's start at a high level with, with courage. What is courage? When you say that, when you talk about it, how do you, how do you think about how we define courage? It's interesting because I don't have a definition for courage that's any different than definition, data-driven definition for vulnerability. And we define vulnerability as the willingness to show up and be seen when you can't control the outcome. And the definition of vulnerability as a construct itself is it's the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And I spent like probably, I don't know, maybe five years, like, because I spend 90% of my time in organizations, big, you know, Fortune 10, big Silicon Valley companies teaching courageous leadership skills. And so... I spent so many years trying to convince people 
of a relationship between courage and vulnerability. And then it became, it got very clear to me one day when I was at Fort Bragg working with special forces. And I asked a really simple question, which was, because everyone thinks vulnerability is weakness. Everyone thinks that it's oversharing, everything's, it's, you know, it's soft. So I asked this question, if vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, give me a single example of courage in your life, on the field, off the field, other troops, you know, your other soldiers, give me a single example of courage that you've witnessed or experienced yourself that didn't involve vulnerability, that didn't involve uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And there was just kind of just silence. And you could see these troops, they were just shifting in their seats and uncomfortable. And a couple of them started putting their heads in their hands. And then finally, one guy stood up and said, ma'am, there is no courage without vulnerability. Three tours, there is no courage without vulnerability. And so I think any conversation that we start around what is courage is it's the willingness to put yourself out there when you can't control how it's going to go. And if you're putting yourself out there and you can kind of control or predict the outcome, you're not being that brave. You're probably doing good stuff, maybe, but you're not being courageous. I just got goosebumps when you said that. Such a powerful definition. And... It's something that's so important. It's such a needed message in in today's world, today's society. I feel like so many people stick to their what what's comfortable and what's safe, and they're so afraid to step into uncertainty and to step into risk. How? Do yeah, we- I mean, it's the special forces soldier, but it's also you know the guy sitting across from the person he loves, and you know, thinking, "Shit, man." I want to say I love you. Should I wait to say it? Maybe I should wait for her to say it first. Okay, you know what? I'm going to be brave. I love you. That's also courage and vulnerability. Yeah, that's a great point. It it's not it it spans the spectrum, right? It's these it's totally. these everyday moments of life and it it goes all the way back out to these heroic achievements in the military and beyond. Yeah, I mean, it is it's the CEO of the startup looking for funding and being turned down, you know, 50 times. It's the 51st time. That's brave. Like, that's courageous. That's vulnerable. And so, this mythology that vulnerability is weakness, it's just there, you know, we just crossed the 400,000 pieces of data mark, which was a big mark for us. There is zero evidence, zero, that vulnerability is weakness. It is by far our most accurate measure of courage. And in fact, we have a daring leader assessment. We put together an assessment for courageous leadership. And we worked with MBA and EMBA students at Wharton, at UPenn, Kellogg at Northwestern, and the Jones School at Rice. And we spent three years putting together this instrument, making sure it's valid, reliable. And basically, it's as simple as this. I can tell you how brave you are by measuring your capacity for vulnerability. It makes perfect sense because if you're afraid to be vulnerable, by definition, you're you're coming at that from a place of fear and scarcity. Yeah. And I mean, it's, and it's, I love the fact that you just said everyday scenarios, everyday situations. Like I have to be, yeah, I didn't know how this podcast was going to go. I don't know, but I'm going to get on it and give it a shot. And, you know, and and if I screw it up, it's going to be out to tons of people. But it's saying something to your roommate like, hey, dude, you can't keep leaving your shit everywhere. It's not working. 
Like it's sitting down with your boss and saying, hey, I, I understand I messed that up, but the way you're giving me feedback, I can't hear what you're saying. So I want to learn from you. But like when you're yelling and screaming and pounding your fist, that doesn't work. One of my favorite quotes of yours, and I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but it's this idea that vulnerability is not as hard or scary or dangerous as getting to the end of your life and asking yourself, what if I had shown up? For me and for the people I've interviewed that are late in life, I cannot imagine a more terrifying thing. I do not want to look back. There's two things There's two things that are really important to me when I look back on my life and my career. The first one is I do not want to look back and wonder, what if? What if I would have said yes? What if I would have tried that? What if I would have said I love you first? And the other thing is I want to be able to look back and know without question that I contributed more than I criticized because criticism is so easy. It's not vulnerable. It's not brave contribution, super brave and hard because everyone will have comments and thoughts about what it is. And there's, there's very minimal risk of failure in criticizing. That's why you have the Teddy Roosevelt. It's not the critic accounts. Just not it. I'm not, that's for me, it's really not the critic accounts. Like, so if you leave some kind of really shitty tweet, you know, and your avatar is, an egg or like the little icon or some movie star and your handle isn't your real name, useless to me. Block or mute forever, whichever is easiest for me. Like, I, I, But if you leave a really hard thing for me to hear, but it's respectful and your name's there and your picture's there, there's a 95% chance if I see it, I'm going to come back and say, tell me more. I'm curious. Why do you think that? I'm interested. Can we dig in? I might DM you and say, this is a really interesting point. I mean, someone made a point about something that I said in daring, you know, in, bra- in braving the wilderness. I was talking about Black Lives Matter and why I think it's important. And I was talking about the dehumanization of people. And a woman said, you know, there's something about the way you frame this sentence that felt privileged and tone deaf to me. And, you know, at first I kind of recoiled. I'm like, oh my God, I'm out here supporting this stuff that like, I'm, you know, taking a lot of heat for, and then yet I'm still tone deaf and it's, you know, and then I was, but I was like, tell me more. We went, we had this long conversation on our DMs on Twitter and I called my agent and said, stop the presses. Is that a real thing? Cause I needed, I need to change something. I wrote something that was in a privileged blind spot for me. I need to change it. I can make it better. And they stopped them and changed it. Random House did. So feedback, even hard feedback, constructive feedback, difficult feedback is not the same as being a critic your whole life and never risking vulnerability. It's just not brave. So how do we start to step into vulnerability or as you called it, rumble with vulnerability? The answer is pretty counterintuitive because here's when I spent the last seven years studying leadership, and I mean talking to everyone, leaders from everyone from, you know, Pixar to special forces, from oil and gas companies in, you know, Singapore to people who work for the White House, like across the board, talking to Fortune 10 CEOs, really asking what is the future of leadership? And so it was the first time I'd ever done a study where the answer saturated across. There was not a single participant who said something different than, oh my God, the future of leadership is courageous leadership. We've got to have braver people and braver cultures. We're facing too many geopolitical 
environmental, just technology, everything is shifting so fast that if we don't have courageous people leading, we're not, companies won't make it, organizations won't make it, governments won't make it. And so what was interesting is my hypothesis was wrong. So I I assumed that the greatest barrier to, to what I call daring leadership or creative le- um, courageous leadership was fear. So as we started, you know, moving into this, what we call selective coding, I went back to some of these leaders and said, wow, okay, we're hearing it's brave leadership. We hear the only people who will be standing in the next five years in really meaningful leadership capacities are courageous people building courageous cultures. How do you stay out of fear? And these people looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, what? And I said, well, you're, you know, you're a daring leader. How do you stay brave all the time? And they're like, I'm afraid all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, what? But you're a brave leader. Like, well, you can call me, you can put me on whatever list you want to, but I'm scared all the time. So as we started digging in and digging deeper into the data and interviewing more people about that, what I learned was it's not fear that gets in the way of us being brave. It's armor. Armor gets in the way of us being brave. Armor gets in the way of us being vulnerable. And so the difference is, let's say you and I, let's say you and I are both leaders, right? And we're both on a scale from one to 10, five, we're, we're both scared five. So you're a, Matt's a five scared leader and I'm a, I'm a five scared leader. But as a daring leader, Matt, you're aware of your armor and you, you choose to be vulnerable and show up and take it off, even though it's really seductive to put it on. I, on the other hand, am not aware about how I use armor to show up. So I stay in my armor. So the first thing we have to do is understand, I mean, you can't do any of this without self-awareness. So the first thing is understand what is your go-to armor? How do you self-protect when you're in uncertainty, risk, and feel emotionally exposed? So for me, it's perfectionism. It's I get emotionally intense and can talk over people. This is not mine particularly, but some people, they use cynicism as armor. Some people, and this is not mine either, but I mean, trust me, I have a shit ton of it, but this, these just happen to not be mine. A lot of people have to be the knower. So when they're vulnerable and feel exposed, they become the knower and it's more important for them to be right than get it right. So we have to, to figure out, I'm a pleaser. That's definitely mine. And I know when I'm wearing my pleasing, good girl, make everyone around me happy armor, because the armor weighs 100 pounds, but the resentment weighs 1,000 pounds. Like I become a really resentful, angry person. And so where we start with learning how to rumble with vulnerability is examining what myths were we raised believing, were we raised believing its weakness, were we raised believing that it's oversharing, how were we raised? And then the second question is, what armor do I use to self-protect? Am I the blustery, posturing, tough guy? Am I the knower? Am I the cynic? It's all bullshit. None of it matters. What is our armor? Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I love the little quip about how the armor weighs 100 pounds, but the resentment weighs 1,000 pounds. Definitely. So you kind of touched on it and talked a little bit about the band. Just to kind of reiterate, what is the One Kindness Challenge itself? It's actually a really simple thing. Now, at the end of the day, I mean, like I said, we all want to do kind things. We all realize the power behind kindness, but it's easy to forget, right? Even right here with us, right, Matt? Like you could think of a time where you've done an act of kindness. It could be recently or it could be from a little while back ago. And just, I want you to just picture that. Just picture what it is that you've done or picture what it is that even you've seen somebody else do. 
and how that made you feel, right? How that experience felt like, just take a moment, just really immerse yourself in that memory. And how did that make you feel? What are the feelings that you're going through? What are the experiences that you're going through in your body? And in that moment, even just now, when you're remembering it, when you're, when you're picturing yourself there now, what you're experiencing could be one of a few things. And maybe you're experiencing some level of warmth, like a warmth that's sort of starting up in your chest area. And it could be feeling like this like calmness and serenity and happiness. So what is happening there is that your kindness is actually triggered by this thing called the vagus nerve, which is right at the, you know, our, the base of our brainstem. And the vagus basically controls things like your digestive tract and, and your body functions, but more importantly, it controls your heart and your heart rate. So you know, this has sort of been linked in a lot of ways of vagus nerve to empathy and feelings of sympathy and empathy, which is why a lot of times when you see somebody, you know, do an act of kindness, you get that same feeling as if when you were doing it yourself. If you ever watch those videos, you can go in this, these great series of videos that are made by, I think, like a, a Thai insurance company. And one of the videos has this guy just going around doing these daily simple acts of kindness. And he's just going around and he's like, you know, helping people do things like water plants and like helping old ladies cross the street, helping like street vendors, you know, giving some money away to, to somebody who's perhaps living on the street and not as you know fortunate as he is. And he's not a rich man or anything like that. He's no Bill Gates. He's no like Elon Musk or some great philanthropist. He's just some guy who's trying to make people's lives better. And every time I watch that video, I get that same feeling. I just like, I want to tear up. I just feel like this amazing sense of like joy and everything like that. So what I'm experiencing, what you're experiencing in that moment, when you're watching that, when you're feeling that, when you're remembering that is that you're getting a hit of dopamine and you're getting, you know, this hit of oxytocin in your body where, you know, that level is going up and you're feeling, you know, what scientists have now called the helper's high. It actually is kind of a high because you really do get this this thrill from it. So our goal with the movement is very, very simple. We're trying to get as many people doing a daily act of kindness. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you're doing a massive act, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go out and, and, you know, help build a shelter, build a, a hospital down in Peru. Or if you're doing something extremely simple, which is just like, I'm going to open a door for somebody. I'm going to help that lady, you know, in the parking lot with her groceries. I'm going to go up to someone and say, hey, listen, I just want to say, I really appreciate you and what you've done. Or, or you write, write a note of thank you to my old high school teacher or my old, you know, my old friend who once helped me. And I, you know, I never really got to really express that. All of those counts as acts of kindness. And the funny thing about that is that as it turns out in these studies, there's not a massive difference between the size of the work that we do, but there is a massive difference in the consistency, which is to say, if you do one act, like let's say you do one massive act in one day, and then you don't do anything again for like six months, the effect of that is not anywhere nearly as powerful as if you were to do, let's say like 21 days of these small little acts, which is why we, we tell, you know, the people who are part of our movement to say, you know, look, you can participate in this. We hope you participate in it forever because what an amazing thing you will be doing for the world. But, you know, at the very least, like try it for 21 days, like do it once a day for 21 days and see how it makes you feel. And I can guarantee you it will change your life. It would change the way you see the world. It would change the way people look at you, which is, you know, another thing we talk about, which is actually kindness makes you look more attractive to, <laughs> to the opposite sex and to other people, which is, which is great. But it would change your lifestyle, it would change how you feel. 
So our goal is to try to get at, you know, like a million acts of kindness out there because, you know, it's very clear that right now we need more kindness in this world more than ever. Whatever your politics is, whatever your background, culture or history is, I think it's pretty clear that right now the world is going through some changes that let's just say maybe more divisive, right? People are becoming a little bit more disconnected. People are becoming a little bit more distant from each other. So we need to build that back into our societies. Yeah. So that's what the movement is about. We're trying to get people to go out there and do 21 Act of Kindness at the very minimum and just watch their lives change. I'll flip it the other way though, Matt. If you think about the teacher who made the biggest difference for you at school, generally people say it's the teacher that listened to them. Is that true for you? That's a good question. I don't know if it's true for me or not. But the the thing that taught me how to listen is that I was a debater in high school and you have to be able to listen really intently to understand what the other side is saying and doing. And how did that make you a better debater by doing that? (laughs) We're flipping the script already. I like it. It made me a better debater because... And this is is something that as you're well aware and you're evangelizing this idea around the world... to be successful at anything, and, and I apply this in business and life across the board, you have to understand what someone else is doing, what they're saying, what they're feeling, what they're going through to be able to respond, to be able to provide a solution. And that was true whether it's a response in a debate all the way up to whether you're dealing with a, a management crisis at a company. It's the same fundamental thing. You have to be able to understand what's really going on and what's really happening and confront reality as best as you can discern it. And to be able to do that, you really have to listen very deeply. And the leaders I work with, Matt, and you highlight this from the debate, and one of the exercises I set them is for today, the next day, and the next week, listen to somebody in the media you fiercely disagree with. And in doing so, so not not a person who's right in front of you like it was with your debates, but if you can tune your frequency to make sure that you listen to somebody in the media, whether that's on TV or radio or a podcast, whatever they have as an opinion, make sure it's the opposite to you and then you can start to understand the difference between hearing and listening because if you listen to someone you fiercely disagree with, suddenly you'll become conscious not only of their assumptions, their judgments, their prejudice, anything you find that's different in your historical experience to them. But you also start to notice that as a mirror back to yourself and you wonder, what prejudice am I holding? What assumptions am I holding? So a really simple tip for everybody, if you want to become aware of your listening blind spots, those things you're not even conscious are true for you, spend one day out of the next seven and spend 30 minutes listening to someone you fiercely disagree with through the media. 30 minutes is important because for five minutes you can hold it, maybe even for 15 minutes you can hold it. But once you go past the 18-minute mark, you start to get frustrated and you start to get angry and you start to want to debate that person there. So a really simple, practical tip for everybody. If you want to become conscious of your listening blind spots, listen to somebody you fiercely disagree with. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, that's a great tip and a great strategy. I want to come back to something you said a second ago that I think bears digging into more, which is this notion of the difference between hearing and listening. Tell me more about that. So we all hear, in fact, the very first skill we learn inside our mother's womb at 20 weeks is to distinguish our mother's sound from any other sound mat. At 32 weeks, you can distinguish Beethoven from Bon Jovi from Beaver. And the minute we come into the world, we come into the world in very active birth. The moment you scream is when the clock starts. That's when you're on your birth certificate. The time of your birth is defined by the time you scream. So we spend the rest of our life screaming to be noticed. And yet the very last thing that leaves us as a skill when we pass away, when I interviewed a couple of palliative care nurses and doctors, is hearing. Hearing is listening to sounds. In fact, while you sleep, you can hear. It's really important that you hear while you sleep because it's part of our survival instincts. But listening is the ability to make sense of what you hear. The difference between hearing and listening, I always say, is the action you take. Nothing is more frustrating when you have a conversation with somebody and you nod and you commit to do something and you don't do it. And the next time they come back, they go, how did you go with that? And, and you go, oh, I forgot. And then that, they interpret that as, well, you heard what I said, but you really didn't listen. So for most of us, listening is about making sense of what we hear. Deep listening, on the other hand, is helping the person who's speaking to make sense of what they're saying because too much of listening is fixated on ourselves and understanding what we need to do to make meaning of what they're saying. That's handy, but a really powerful listener helps the person speaking make sense of what they're saying, not just you make sense of what they're saying as well. So most of us, and in the 80s and the 90s, they had this amazing movement called the active listening movement, which is focus on the speaker, notice what they're saying, nod, use nonverbal affirmatives like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm or tell me more as an example. But the reality is all that's helping you to do is helping you to listen is interesting. Helping them to listen to themselves is even more important. Matt, there's three parts of neuroscience I'd love everybody to understand before they leave the podcast today. And if you are only taking one note, this is the note I'd be taking. If I got run over by a truck and I hope that one thing I pass on to the world is these three numbers. I speak at 125 words a minute, you listen at 400 words a minute, and I think at 900 words a minute. And we're going to deconstruct each of those numbers. So this is the maths and science of listening. It's the neuroscience of listening. 
if I speak at 125 words a minute and you can listen at 400, Matt, you're going to be distracted. You're going to fill in the gap. I'm going to sound boring. And there's 300 words you're going to fill in your head because you can. If you want to try this out, just turn the podcast up to two times speed and you'll still be able to make sense of what we say. Blind people can listen at up to 300 words a minute because they've trained their mind to do that. For blind people, the speed at which they can listen increases their ability to literally see their environment around them. So if I can speak at only 125 words a minute, uh, a horse race caller or an auctioneer can speak at up to 200 words a minute, you can still make sense of that. But we're all programmed to be distracted. And again, it's happening for you right now. I'm not speaking fast enough and you're filling in the gaps for those 300 words that I'm not speaking fast enough for you. And it gets worse. If you're on your cell phone and you're sending a text message or a WhatsApp message or anything else on that phone, it's impossible for you to notice what I'm not saying. It's impossible for you to notice my body language. But here's the frustrating thing for me as the speaker. I've got 900 words stuck in my head. And I can only get 125 words out at any one time, Matt. So the maths is really simple. The likelihood the first thing out of my mouth is what I'm thinking. There's a one in nine chance or 11% that what I say is what I'm thinking. I'm at the stage in my life that I'm spending more time with a doctor than I'd like. And if they said to me, I got an 11% chance of surviving surgery, I'd be asking for a second opinion. And the reality is in a conversation, we should be asking for a second opinion as well, Matt. I want to explore a couple of the things you said. Those are some really interesting stats. Coming back to something you talked about a second ago, tell me about this idea of how do we help somebody listen to themselves? And I might be phrasing that incorrectly, but how do we focus on the other person and the idea of deep listening? How do we help them make sense of what they're saying as opposed to just actively listening to them? Yeah, so the very first place to start is to remember if, if there are five levels of listening, level one is not paying attention to the speaker. Level one is listening to yourself. You can't be conscious enough to focus on them and their listening if you've got the last conversation that you just had in your head or the next conversation or the fact you've got to go to the gym later on this evening or the fact you've got to sort out something on the weekend or you've got a dinner party or you've got a birthday party and you've got all this noise going on in your head before you even get to the conversation. It's impossible for you to help them listen until you listen to yourself. You need to be an empty vessel in the conversation so you can focus on them. But a lot of us come into the conversation as if we jump into the passenger seat of a car and forget to put our own seatbelt on. We're driving away in the conversation and all of a sudden if they slam the brakes on, you're going to go through the front window because you're not in the same swim lane as they are. You're not in the same conversation. So three really quick tips, Matt, to get you centered, ready for that conversation to help them listen to themselves. Tip number one, switch your cell phone off. Oh, wow. That's kind of crazy talk, I know. But if you're addicted to your phone, which about 86% of us are, just switch it to flight mode then. In flight mode, you can take some notes, but you're not getting notifications coming in. In the data that we've done, 1,410 people, the biggest struggle people have with listening is the distraction of the cell phone. That by far makes up the biggest distraction. If you want to improve how you've listened and you've got the cell phone switched to flight mode or off, here's two other tips. 
Tip number two, drink water during the conversation. Just a glass of water for every 30 minutes in a dialogue. A hydrated brain is a listening brain. The brain represents 6% of the body mass, but it consumes up to 25% of the blood sugars of the body. It's a really hungry part of the brain. The reality is a hydrated brain can get more blood sugars there faster. Brain that isn't taught how to listen struggles with how to listen. We do a lot of work in the prefrontal cortex when it comes to listening. This is the most modern part of the brain, but when it's untrained, it feels hard. A lot of people say to me, Listening makes my brain hurt. And I always say you're doing it wrong if that's how you're doing it. And we'll explain what that means shortly. Tip number three is simply this. The deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. So if you can notice your breathing and deepen your breathing, the more oxygen you can get to the brain, the more likely it is that your brain will perform well on the task of listening. So three things before we even start fixating on the speaker is to get ourselves into a state that we're available to hear what they're saying and more importantly, to hear what they're not saying. And that's where we're going to go to next. But I'm sure that's prompted a few questions for you, Matt. So many different things that I want to explore and so many important themes and ideas. I think the place I want to come back to, those are great tips. And and I, I really love, I want to reiterate or emphasize the point you made about putting your cell phone in airplane mode and even the idea of actually telling somebody in a conversation, hey, I'm going to put my phone in airplane mode so I can really focus on you in this conversation. It's a really powerful gesture. It reminds me of a great story that I have to share with you. About 11 years ago, Peter was flying from Seattle, Microsoft head office. He ran about a hundred million dollar business for Microsoft. It was not insignificant. You figured this guy's pretty busy. And I was hosting 20 CEOs in Australia in a round table where he would be at the head of the table. We were in a fancy pants hotel that had this big boardroom table and he'd literally just flown in from Seattle that morning. So he's straight into the meeting. It was 9 a.m. and he was at the head of the table. What Peter did next really changed the way I thought about listening. He sat down, I introduced him, and then Peter said, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. The most important thing I can give you right now is my attention. With that, he stood up. He took his cell phone out of his jacket pocket, switched it off, and put it in his bag. Now, what was interesting was what happened next with the other 20 CEOs sitting around the table. What do you think happened then, Matt? I don't know. They all put their phones away? Yeah. So 14 of them put their cell phones into the bags. Now, what that did for the other six was interesting. I don't know if it shamed them into doing something, but I'm guessing the rest switched them into flight mode. And for a lot of us, we can bring about change just by role modeling that change. And in most meetings, when I do that, the person I'm working with will reciprocate. So if we want to bring about change, it's not about asking everybody else to make that change. If you can simply role model, make an example that you're going to switch your phone into airplane mode, you'll be surprised what happens to the other person, but more important, what happens next to the quality of the conversation. And I love that point too about saying the most important thing I can give you is my attention. I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but that was such a such a powerful example, such a great gesture. And it's it's something that's so simple to do, and yet it's it's 
hard and it's not necessarily easy. What happened at the end of the meeting was fascinating. So these execs, they've got these amazingly tight schedules. They're in the country for two to three days and they have all these very highly leveraged meetings where he was going to other locations to do very similar kinds of meetings. And I debriefed the group for the next half an hour. And what was fascinating was they said they were expecting the group to talk about the future of technology or something else to do with technology or technically orientated conversations. That's what they were expecting from Peter and that dialogue. But what they said was, Peter, Peter was just asking each of them what they were struggling with personally. And it was a, he created a pretty safe environment. That group I know stayed connected well after this event with some of the challenges they were talking about themselves personally. And the value that Peter created wasn't just the value around what he talked about technically for a very brief period of time, but he helped the room listen to each other. And that, again, is a really powerful thing we can do. A lot of the times, if there's three, four, five, six people in the room, we generally hear from the loudest. We don't take the time to make sure that everybody is being heard. And that's really critical. Again, the difference between a recreational listener and a deep listener, a powerful listener, an impactful listener, is their ability to listen to what's unsaid, Matt. So back to the point about helping somebody make sense of what they're saying themselves. The most potent thing we can do as a listener is to help them make sense of those 800 words stuck in their head. Back to the maths again. I speak at 125 words a minute. I can think at 900. That's an average. Some people can think at 600 words a minute. Some people can speak way up uh, think way up to 1,600 words a minute. So on average, we speak at about nine. Uh, think at about 900 words a minute. So if I say the first thing that comes out of my mouth, unless I'm a great actor who's rehearsed my lines well, the likelihood what I say is what I mean is 11%. That's you get probably better odds going to Las Vegas and playing the slot machines or going on the roulette wheel. And the, the odds are going to be much better for you there. So here's a couple of simple practical tips. When somebody says something, treat silence at the end of what they say like it's a word. Listen to the beginning of the word, the middle of the word, and the end of the word. Treat silence like it's another word. And in doing so, what you'll notice is they'll either unpack another 125 words in their head well, they'll pause, might bow their head down a little bit. But if you can remember these simple phrases, what else? Tell me more. How long have you been thinking about this? What else? Tell me more. What else have you been thinking about this? All of a sudden, um, just ma magic happens. And you'll be nodding as I say this. What they'll do is they'll draw their breath and they'll use phrases like this. Hmm. Well, actually, what's really important on this topic is, well, they'll say, hmm, now that I think about it, what I haven't told you is, well, they'll say, hmm, what I've said is interesting, but let's focus on this. And doesn't matter how it comes out, Matt, what they're doing is exploring what's stuck in their brain. You see, our mind is like a washing machine. While we're on wash cycle, 
it's sudsy, it's dirty, it's moving around, and it's kind of not making much progress. But when we speak, it's like the rinse cycle of a washing machine. It's like clean water is coming into our brain. And as we speak and express this idea, what's happening to the neural pathways and the synaptic connections is they're creating an electronic circuit for the idea to be expressed. And then the idea takes a concrete form where we can look at it together, we can analyze it together, and more importantly, the speaker can see it and notice it. So for most of us, if we just practice saying, tell me more, you'll be shocked what you hear, but more importantly, they'll start to understand what they mean, not just what they said the first time. So getting into the data a little bit, you, you know, sure. what does the science say? Again, it's one of the big things on this podcast, we like to kind of be data driven. What does the science yeah. say about how to acquire power? It's so funny, Matt, when, you know, I think a lot of people, maybe many of your listeners, like if you ask them, you know, all right, be honest, do you want to have power? They they'd feel a little bit uneasy or queasy, right? Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to grab power. And, and, and in a way that's because we think of power as Machiavellian. I really define power as your ability to advance the greater good, to alter the states of people around you and make them do good work. And I think that fits a lot of different social scientific definitions of power uh, that you could apply at the international level. So that begs the question of how we gain power. And this is where I was really surprised in writing The Power Paradox about how much we've learned to answer this question in the scientific literature. So we gain power, for example, by really listening carefully and, and really taking in the wisdom and thoughts of other people around you. You know, Abraham Lincoln in the historical accounts was this, a great practitioner of this art of just empathy, listening, hearing people well, gaining collective wisdom actually gains you power. Another way we gain power is, you know, to put it really simply by being kind and pro-social. In hunter-gatherer societies, there's a, a prize-winning essay from four, that summarizes who are the leaders in 48 hunter-gatherer societies living for 200,000 years in the conditions of our social evolution, that really in which our social structure started to take shape. And, and Christopher Bohm observes, it's really the person who's fair, impartial, humble, and kind, right? So studies are starting to show, for example, in the competitive altruism literature, that if I share, if I'm kind, if I express gratitude, for example, in the work of Mike Norton at Harvard in social networks or organizations, people will respect me more. They'll get, give me status and I'll have power and influence. So I think in a way we're returning slowly with, with a lot of exceptions in the world to our evolutionary roots of power being founded in kindness and empathy and being fair and, and humble. You seem shocked. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, I think it's a very counterintuitive finding. If, if anything comes to mind, I'd love to maybe hear one or two examples from the research kind of sure. about how that, how you came to that conclusion. Yeah. So let me give you a couple of examples, you know, and, and I think, you know, these are just scientific tidbits out there because I've been speaking in really broad terms. So, you know, what studies find, for example, is that if you're able to read other people's emotions well, and in the power paradox, this book, I present a couple of fun tests of like reading emotions from people's facial expressions 
or drawings of emotion. If I can empathize in that way, I actually rise in financial analysis firms, right? I gain more power. If I'm a school kid and I'm in seventh grade and I'm facing the Lord of the Flies politics of the playground and I know how to read people's emotions well, just detecting emotions in their facial expressions, once again, I gain social power. If I am working on a team, this is a recent study from MIT by Woolian colleagues, I'm working on a team, we got to solve some hard problems, and I'm listening carefully and asking good questions, really simple practices. My team does better and I gain power, right? So these are all specific examples of how, you know, this counterintuitive notion that it's being good to others actually gets me power. Here's a final example of Adam Grant and Francesca Gina. If I'm a manager and I am trying to get people to do things and I simply say, thank you, right? I express gratitude. Those people are more productive and enhance my influence and power. So there are a lot of new findings that, that tell us, you know, that Machiavelli was wrong, that, that the pro-social tendencies are pathways to power. I want to unpack a lot of these different pieces. I definitely want to dig into this idea that the mind is, is embodied and also relational. I want to talk about three-pillar training. I want to talk about the wheel of awareness. Before we get into any of those, to contextualize this a little bit more, I want to hear your story about your experience in Namibia. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, our institute is called the Mindsight Institute. And, you know, for years, when I, when I was in medical school in the 70s, I noticed that my teachers didn't sense the mind. And that is, they treated people like, you know, bags of chemicals. It was very strange. And I dropped out of school for a while. And before I came back, I made up this word Mindsight for how we see the mind so you have physical sight where you see things like chemicals or the body or whatever. But then there's mind sight. It's a different system, you know. So flash forward many years, you know, we became very interested here at the Mindsight Institute as to whether other cultures that represent in some ways not the influence of contemporary culture, would they have words that try to communicate about the inner nature of our subjective experience or what we're aware of? So that would be how you'd look at the insight capacity of a person to have mindsight and then how they would use that for empathy. These are two of the three aspects of mindsight. So mindsight is insight into your own mind, empathy to understand the mind of another, and integration. The third thing is to you know honor differences, promote linkages. So it's basically kindness and compassion and love, really. So we went to Namibia because there was some reason to believe that genetically some of the ancestors of the group that was the originally the homo sapiens who were the originators of all human beings were there in namibia there's some some other views these days but that was the line of reasoning then so we went to namibia and we went out to different tribal groups and we had the good fortune of being able to have a translator with us and interviewed the villagers to see if they used mindsight language and indeed they did and so that's why we went and it was a really exciting thing. And if there was any way to, to get close to the original ancestors of all of us, we were there and it was a beautiful thing. But one evening around the campfire, we were just hanging out with the villagers and I asked the translator to ask one of the villagers a question because there was a drought there and there was a famine and there was a lot of disease 
and there was a lot of poverty and people were appearing really, really happy. And it was kind of perplexing from a contemporary cultural view of the importance of material comfort that we associate with what we think success and happiness is. And, you know, I see a lot of miserable people with a lot of stuff here in the contemporary world. But there we were in Namibia with all these challenges to material comfort, but they seem very happy. So the translator says, you want me to ask the, this guy if he's happy? I said, yeah. And if he's happy, why is he happy? You know, I just, and, and you want me to ask him why he's happy? I said, yeah, please. So he asked the villager the question and the villager says to me, I will never forget. He says in his language and it's translated back into English for me, he says, my people are happy because we belong. We belong to one another in our community and we belong to earth. And there was like this silence and I felt incredibly grateful for the response. And then this wave of sadness came over me about just thinking about back home in the United States. And, and then the villager asked the translator a question who translates it for me. And he says, he wants to know if where you come from, do you belong and are you happy? And I thought about how much misery there is where we are. And so I said, you know, there is a, a lot of, experience of not belonging. And there is a lot of unhappiness, even though there's a lot of, you know, relatively, you know, there's food, there's not the disease you're facing. You know, we, we have water. I mean, but there's a lot of unhappiness and people don't feel successful and they're on this ladder to try to try to get more successful and more stuff and more of this, more of that. And we just all stare at each other. And that moment has really stuck with me. And, and the whole notion of belonging, relates directly to what we're talking about, the mind being both embodied and relational. And it raised for me back then, when I was in Namibia, a deep, it's a question, but it's really like an emotional question kind of thing. Like, what is the self? You know, what, what is the self really? And, you know, this is my next book is all about this that I'm just starting. And, you know, it's the idea of like, in contemporary culture, we tend to think of the self as your body, you know, or, you know, since the time of Hippocrates, you say the mind is just brain activity or you know, neuroscientists certainly reaffirm that. And that places the mind as the source of self inside your, your skin encased body. And I think there's just something fundamentally limiting about that, if not outright wrong, that this villager was really describing the idea of belonging to community and belonging to earth. You know, and, and since then, you know, a lot of my, the workshops I do and the connections I have with, you know, I consider people coming to workshops, my colleagues, you know, we're all on this journey together to try to learn, you know, the whole notion of an integrated self would be where, yes, you have a body and the body, you know, is an I or a me. It's an internal locus of your you know, location of your mind, of yourself. But you also have a relational self that's different. It's differentiated, but it's equally as important. And yet it's not really a focus of what we often do in contemporary culture. It's all about I, me, mine, you know, this internal thing. So a relational self would be like an us or a we. And, you know, I started teaching these lectures, you know, called From Me to We, which sounds kind of cool and rhymes. And one of my online students had come for this in-person workshop and she got really angry at me very appropriately. And she said, you know, I'm really mad at you. And I said, what are you mad about? She goes, the title of your talk. And I said, what's the wrong with my title? She goes, it's me to we. I said, what's wrong with that? You know, we is important. She goes, yeah, I know we is important, but why get rid of me? I go, oh my God, you're right. She goes, shouldn't I be like 
exercising my body? She goes, I go, yeah. She goes, shouldn't I be like understanding my personal history and where I came from, my relationship with my parents, you know, the whole parenting from the inside out approach? I said, yes. And shouldn't I, you know, sleep well? I said, of course you do all these things. She goes, isn't that all the internal experience? I said, yes, it is. She goes, so why would you want to drop me? I said, you shouldn't. She goes, we'll come up with another name. And so I said, okay, well, how about not only limited to an internal me, but also extended to a relational we? And she goes, that doesn't rhyme at all. So I said, okay, okay. You know, if you're gonna have an integrated self, it would need to be kind of like a candle is, you know, now I say this kind of like a candle is both the wax and the light. You're gonna be the wax of your body as a me, but the light of your relationships, which is a we. So, you know, if you integrate that, you maintain both somehow. So me plus we equals mui, I said to her, and she was very excited about it. So I've been using mui, M-W-E, as the simple three-letter word. We've been getting all sorts of other foreign languages, foreign from English, other languages to come up with their own version, like Yonos in Spanish and things like that. And it's been fun because mui allows you to have your internal experience but also puts right into the word the relational identity as as a we. So me plus we equals we. So that's what came from Namibia. I was realizing that you know belonging, not just fitting in, but actually belonging, where you're maintaining your me, but you really are part of a we. So you're a we is I think. For me, the, or from we, is the way, you know, the belonging lesson from Namibia has, you know, come through in, in, in what I'm working on now. And clarifying this for the listeners and, and making sure that I understand it as well, this idea of the relational self in a very real and scientific sense is the notion that our minds are composed of, in one aspect, our relationships with others and with the world as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. And when you put the mind as this embodied relational emergent process that's coming from energy and information flow, then basically what you do is with that view, you realize skull and skin don't limit that flow. So it's an artificial divide to put the mind and the self, which I think comes from the mind, to limit that by your skull or by your skin. So the system is energy and information flow, just as you're saying, Matt. It's inside your body and, underscore and, it is also in the energy and information flow you are sharing from the body you're born into. So you do have an internal me, for sure. We're not denying that. And you have a relationship with other people and the nature around you, which just to make it two-piece, we'll call that the planet. So it's people and the planet is the connection that creates your relational self. It's really an interconnectedness. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. 
Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.